Thought Leadership from PwC. With a couple of clients I've counseled recently, one of the things we've done once we kind of get to that holistic conversation with the, the tax folks, the ESG folks, and whoever's responsible for facilities management is I've actually asked the facilities management folks to go back through the last couple of years of CapEx requests and find a couple of the losers, mm-hmm. the ones that didn't get funded, that now that they've heard a little bit about the tax incentives, they want to remodel. And in a couple of cases, we found ones that's like, oh, wait a minute, we actually should do this one. So it's, it's a great point just to think about that. Today we're back talking ESG with an updated look at the opportunities and incentives provided by the Inflation Reduction Act. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. BUILD is the largest climate legislation in U.S. history. The IRA includes tax credits, incentives, and other provisions intended to help companies tackle climate change, increase investments in renewable energy, and enhance energy efficiency. With nearly $370 billion in climate and clean energy provisions up for grabs, there are opportunities for companies across the spectrum. From clean energy funding and innovation, to green manufacturing, clean fuels and vehicles, and even carbon reduction and sequestration. We covered the IRA on this podcast when it was signed into law by President Biden in August 2022, but we wanted to bring the topic back to you to hear the latest. What is the IRS saying now in terms of the guidance process? What are the most common ways that companies are planning to take advantage of the act? What provisions does the act have that may benefit companies that are not in the energy industry? And of course, what can companies do today strategically to maximize value from this opportunity? Our guest today will cover those questions and more. Back with us on the podcast is Matt Haskins, a principal in PwC's Washington National Tax Office, where he leads the firm's clean tech tax practice, focusing on renewable energy financing and M&A transactions. Matt's decades of experience in energy, renewables, and environmental taxes and legislation make him a valuable asset for all of you. With that, let's listen to my conversation with Matt. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's really good timing because I feel like talked about it six months ago when it was enacted. And then, you know, there's been a lot of individual conversations as different companies have looked at what this may mean to them. But then all of a sudden, I'm getting questions again. I've seen a lot of, um, you know, press about it recently. So I definitely think it's a topic that's top of mind for many companies, just given the amount of money that's involved, um, which is kind of crazy. So definitely would be good to hear some of the updates. And I know there's been some recent developments but maybe before we do that, it would be good just to re-level set what was included in, in that act. Great, Heather. It's uh, good, to, good to be back. And we certainly have had a ton of conversations with folks over the last six months about this. So quick recap. There's $370 billion worth of tax credits in this Inflation Reduction Act over the next 10 years. dozen different credits. The focus is on catalyzing investments in clean electricity, cleaner transportation, greener manufacturing, and less carbon-intensive real estate. Um, a couple of areas that have attracted a lot of attention and focus are what I would call technology bets. So 
tax credits designed to incentivize emerging technologies and carbon capture and storage and green hydrogen. We're also getting a lot of questions from folks about the so-called kickers for wage and benefit, for location, for domestic content. And just to remind people, it not only matters what type of project you do under the Inflation Reduction Act, it actually matters where you do it and how you do it. And of course, um, I've been getting questions almost every week about direct pay, which credits are available for direct pay from the government, and how the transferability market to basically sell credits from one taxpayer to another might work. Hey, I have a, just a broad question before we get into some of the details. It's interesting you mentioned the conversations you're having. I'm sure they're different than the ones we're having in the national office, which are mostly about accounting. But are you hearing mostly from, I'll call it your traditional client base of powering utilities companies or much, much broader and maybe more companies that are new to looking at these types of credits and incentives. It's, it's really more the latter. I think um, it has not taken people very long to realize that this isn't just an energy bill. It's really an ESG bill. And it's an opportunity for everybody to sort of figure out, you know, sort of how they use energy, how their manufacturing processes work, and what they c can do to basically advance their car low carbon goals. All right. I think that's good. And I think just helpful level setting for our listeners that this is definitely a topic that is broadly applicable, you know, across the board uh, to different companies. So, Matt, I know when we spoke back in uh, the summer, there were a lot of open questions, just a lot <laughs> of questions that, you know, I think you guys really couldn't answer then. And I know that there is a process for any bill like this that the Treasury Department goes through to clarify how parts of it are going to work and that there have been some developments. So what are some of the things that we've seen? Well, so I, I guess what I would say is we're, we're probably at the end of the beginning of the guidance process. Um, we, I feel like that's like a song title perhaps, Matt, but... It, it's actually a ripoff of a Churchill quote. Okay, but that, okay. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, so in the, in the fall, the IRS issued nine notices to start the guidance process. And the notices were literally just lists of questions where they were seeking taxpayer input. Uh, remember, there's over 700 pages of legislation here. For all the detail that's in it, there's also a lot of detail that's not there. So they started off the process just by soliciting input from the public on what sorts of issues they should issue guidance on. And, you know, I, I think the corporate community obviously jumped on that. People submitted a ton of comment letters. But it's also important for our listeners in the corporate community to remember that Treasury is intentionally running a guidance process where they're seeking input from non-corporate stakeholders, so from environmental groups, from community groups. It's going to be a different sort of cluster of people commenting on these rules than the typical IRS guidance process. Amongst our corporate clients, I think some of the most common questions or, you know, kind of frequently asked questions, if you will, are about stacking. So stacking is the term that people came up with right away to sort of describe. It's like, well, what if I qualify for the carbon capture credit, but also qualify for the clean fuels credit? Can I get both? Does it matter if those two facilities are you know, separately owned. How Treasury answers those stacking questions obviously can have a huge effect on whether some of these projects are, you know, viable or, you know, the, the level of public support that they would have. Um, they've also been getting a ton of questions from folks about the domestic content requirement for electric vehicles. 
Um, and that's even become a bit of a foreign policy issue. Um, if you all have been following the newspapers, you know that um, you know a, lo a lot of uh, governments in Europe and, and the Japanese government have all been you know, kind of pleading with the administration, frankly, to sand the edges a little bit off of the domestic content requirements um, so that more electric vehicles that are made by you know, OEMs outside the United States will qualify. And that's, that's an issue where you know, I think it's kind of a TBD. So can I interrupt with a couple questions? And I, I know that you have more to say on this, but can I, I just want to rewind. Uh, when you were talking about other stakeholders and that corporate should be aware that there are so many other stakeholders here, when you say the Treasury was soliciting feedback from them, was it is the intent of that to make sure that the way this is administered meets the intent of the law? Or what type of feedback were they looking for from the non-corporate participants? So I, I think they're looking for feedback on a couple of different metrics. Again, be, because this is a bill that has sort of a, a social and almost an environmental justice component to it, I think they're actively seeking feedback from stakeholders in those communities, in the environmental community and in some of the you know, kind of a community organizer type you know, folks to make sure that they're issuing guidance so that the way they ultimately make people eligible for credits also accomplishes those social goals. Again, it's a type of rulemaking that Treasury is normally not asked to do. So I think they probably need a little bit of help on that. Um, I think they're also frankly, somewhat sensitive to the notion that if, you know, in a traditional guidance process where companies you know, come in and make technical arguments and sort of push credits to the edge, that there may be some potential backlash about, you know, certain types of projects qualifying that in retrospect don't really achieve the environmental objectives um, that the bill, are, bill is supposed to encourage. At the risk of uh, picking on one particular industry, there's a there's an interesting question right now in hydrogen about whether it is possible to show that you're producing green hydrogen by buying electricity and also buying renewable energy certificates rather than having a dedicated supply of renewable energy that feeds the facility. Obviously, the former, right, you know, grid, grid energy plus renewable energy certificates is a lot easier to achieve, particularly in the short run. Um, but environmental stakeholders, I think, have some concerns about the renewable energy certificate system. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I was reading about a plant where that this uh, came up as a question that was a plant that was being converted to hydrogen. So I definitely see that, and I know there's many questions like that. One more question for you on this topic. Have they gotten the type of feedback that you think they were looking for? Have these other groups been active participants or not necessarily, or we don't have good visibility? Uh, you, you do have reasonably good visibility because all the comment letters are basically public. Oh, so same right? as like in, in the a, SEC. In a, in a FOIA, yeah, in a FOIA yeah. type of process, that blanking on the name of the website, but you know, you can go read them all. And yeah. There are hundreds. Okay. Um, most of them are still from, you know, kind of the business community, but there are hundreds of comments from all sorts of folks. So let me ask you another question. It's actually where we paused before, because you mentioned the fact that there's been, I'll call it a bit of a hubbub about the amount, um, the, some of the requirements for the electric vehicles and to receive those credits. And you mentioned that there has been some push uh, for potentially some, you know, um, I can't remember, smoothing of the edges, I think is maybe something similar to what you said 
on that. Is that something we would anticipate we may see or it's really too hard to tell or once some uh, there's, you know, a law like this in place, it just is not going to get changed? I think it's hard to know and it's going to be a little bit hard to guess how much discretion the administration will think that they have to do things like that without going back to Congress, mm-hmm. which in this environment they probably can't do. Um, but I, I also think the, the, the biggest, the, the biggest short-term effect of this discussion on the corporate community and, and our listeners here is the EV guidance probably won't come out quite as fast as people hoped because I think there, there will be a little bit of a pause or, you know, maybe some reflection as they draft that guidance to, you know, sort of accommodate some of those questions or at least have a response to some of the questions that have been raised by, you know, some of our trading partners. It's a bit interesting to see what our trading partners have been doing, right? They, you know, in the EU, um, I, I would say they've sort of pushed a two, what I call a two-track response. So they, they, they work in governmental channels and ministerial channels to, you know, talk about how the IRA has elements of protectionism or industrial policy that is sort of you know, counter to normal free trade principles. On the other hand... The, you know, Christine Lagarde in the EU announced a couple of weeks ago that they were actually going to be relaxing state aid restrictions that normally apply to tax legislation in the EU so that national governments can enact their own domestic incentives in Europe to compete with the IRA incentives. Um, one thing that seems abundantly clear to me is that the IRA is big enough that it it's, it's affecting corporate decision-making, not only here but in Europe, and that you know, national governments are concerned that they will be adversely affected. In other words, that people will choose to make their investments here in the United States rather than over there um, because of this bill. So if nothing else, the IRA has gotten everybody's attention globally. Well, which from that point of view, it's a positive. So then let me go back uh, to you mentioned the stacking and that, you know, companies, there's a lot of focus on that. So have, what have we seen in that area in terms of guidance? Well, not, that guidance hasn't come out yet. So, you know, the, so the, early, the early guidance that has come out, we, we did get a, a notice on the wage and benefit requirements um, right after Thanksgiving. And, you know, frankly, it's, it's, I, I refer to that one as a speed chess move. In the legislation... The wage and benefit rules take, took effect 60 days after the IRS published its first substantive guidance on the provisions. So they were under pressure to get something out quickly where they could sort of hit the speed chess clock and say, mm, we have substantive yes. guidance out, the 60-day clock started. So they started the 60-day clock, and the wage and benefit requirements then became effective at the end of January. Similarly, earlier this week, on Monday, two additional notices came out on the definitions of low-income community and and, and kind of um, tribal lands projects and the initial guidance on the Section 48C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Program. Both of those also had a statutory sort of clock attached to them. So I think they focused on those first. We keep hearing that there will be additional substantive guidance coming in kind of the March-April timeframe, but I'm also starting to hear rumblings out of Washington that, you know, that could slip a little bit. And so, Matt, when you say Monday, uh, for our listeners' benefit, that was on uh, February 13th. And what did we, anything specific you'd highlight from that guidance that came out? 
So let, let's talk about the um, 48C guidance, the Advanced Energy Manufacturing Property Guidance or Facility Guidance first. That's a, a topic that a lot of our clients have been interested in. Um, these are investment tax credits for retrofitting manufacturing facilities to become more energy efficient or to produce um, lower carbon goods. We are now on the clock, right? The first 40% of the $10 billion of cred total credits will be um, subject to an award program that sort of takes place in 2023. If um, you know, people out there are familiar with the way that the 48C program ran in 2009-2010 um, under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, it's going to be a similar process uh, with some updated criteria that reflect changes to the statute. One new thing this time is that the starting point in the process is that you have to submit a concept paper uh, for evaluation by the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy is going to give you a thumbs up or thumbs down. They will, they're going to send you a letter of encouragement or a letter of discouragement, which is a wonderful um, drafting, um, about whether you should submit a full application. I think they're afraid they're going to get inundated with no hopers, frankly. Um, so there's a preliminary screening process. And then uh, it, the guidance is careful to say that if you get a letter of discouragement, you're not forbidden from applying, but you should be aware that you probably won't get any credits. The window, I won't go into all the technical details yeah. they're going to look at, but the window for applying, you can start submitting your concept papers to the Department of Energy on May 31st. Treasury has also promised to have an additional round of, of guidance out before May 31st. And if you want to be in the first round of awards, you have to have started the concept paper process with the Department of Energy by the end of July. So... You know, if, if people think they have projects that are, you know, to use the old phrase from the ARRA era, you know, sort of shovel ready. Yes, right? yes. Or, or shovel ready-ish. Now's the time to start assembling that information, start drafting that concept paper. You'll probably have to tweak it a little bit when whatever the extra guidance is that comes out in May. But my guess is there will be a lot of people hitting the send button on concept papers to send the DOE right away on May 31st or June 1st. There's kind of a similar process they set up for the low-income projects. Um, so there, there's sort of four categories. There's um, low-income tribal lands, low-income housing, and then low-income economic benefit projects. Um, this is the first piece of sort of stacking type guidance we got. So um, it's possible to actually hit two of the four kickers. So if you do like a project in a low-income community that's focused on housing, you can get 10 plus 10, right? 20% bonus ITC. Um, and similarly, there, there's, an, there's an allocation process. Um, they, they're going to do basically, they, they've sort of sorted the projects into four categories, and they're going to do a 60-day window of applications for each type starting later in the year. Matt, you mentioned the ARRA, and I've been thinking about that some. And for those of you who I guess are perhaps younger than Matt and I, that, that um, came out of the 2008 financial crisis and otherwise, there's a lot of incentives for green, um, renewable energy and otherwise. But I was trying to remember if that had similar almost like this, I don't want to use the word pre-approval, I guess I'll use your words of encouragement or, and discouragement or or if not that, have we seen a similar process so, otherwise? So, so the, the original 48C program didn't have the initial concept paper. But the way, remember, it's a, it's, it's, it's a weird tax credit. It's a capped tax credit. There's a, there's, a, you know, there's a fixed bucket of tax credits the government's going to award. And 
the way eventually what's going to happen is that the Department of Energy is going to evaluate these projects across the technical criteria set forth in the notice. One of the key ones is basically the amount of carbon emissions reduction achieved per dollar of tax credit requested. So it's almost like a shadow price of carbon concept. And the DOE is going to rank those projects. Like here's the best one. Here's the second best one. Here's the third best one. And then the IRS will say, okay, I've got $4 billion to spend. Project number one gets its full allocation of credits. I now have, I don't know, $3.8 billion left. So they go down the list in order until the money runs out. So in the ARRA process, um, over 500 projects applied for credits, and they had enough money to fund 183. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so definitely now, it, I think that gives some good context to your comment of why so many people are going to try to get their applications in on May 31st, June 1st, or otherwise. And it, and it also points, I think, to the importance of, frankly, doing quality technical mm-hmm. analysis. Um, I had a few potential clients in the first round who thought that somehow this was a credit you could lobby your way into. It is not. <laughs> All right, that's a good that's a good public service announcement there, um, Matt. So if people know that this is something they need to take seriously. Any other, um, either in technology or some of these other areas, any other credits you would highlight as something unique about them, or where you're getting a lot of questions about them, similar yeah, to this? I mean, we, we've touched on a lot of them already. I yeah. think green, green hydrogen is just attracting a tremendous amount of interest. You know, we we talked about a couple of the technical issues there. Um, I think there's clearly a potential huge market for it. There are also some huge technical challenges. Um, it just takes a lot of electricity to split water mm-hmm. right, into hydrogen and oxygen. And, you know, people who want to do that at scale, I think, are probably in the renewable energy business first, right, to secure right. their own supply of renewable, of, you know, wind or solar or whatever they're going to use. And then they're in the hydrogen business. Right. Trying to think if there's a way you could like combine hydrogen pump storage and kind of generate your own renewables, but that seems perhaps too complex, definitely for this podcast. So uh, it's probably a better question for my son, who's a mechanical engineer, than for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go. On that note, then, Matt, let me ask you another question because clearly there's a lot here for companies to keep track of. And again, you know, we talked about the fact a lot of companies that I'll call it relatively new. To these types of incentives. So in your day-to-day conversations with clients, what are what type of advice are you giving them to navigate through all this, particularly given that there's still so much uncertainty? Well, that's a great question. And uncertainty, um, particularly for people who need financing, you know, in, in their investment models is 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 you know one of the biggest barriers right now. Um, I, I think that you know treasury folks are aware that. You know, time is of the essence in getting guidance out, but they also have a limited bandwidth for getting guidance out. One thing I guess I should mention before I sort of, you know, dive into some practical things is, you know, we mentioned that comment letter process that, you know, Treasury went through, the notices. A formal window for submitting those comment letters has come and gone, but what we keep hearing from government officials is they're, they're more than happy to continue to take comment letters as long as it doesn't slow down their drafting process. So as, you know, People work on additional technical issues, dive into the details, find issues that people maybe hadn't even thought about three months ago. It's still okay to get comment letters in, and there's still a chance to do that. With that said, I think there's sort of three big areas that you know I 
would sort of encourage people to think through. And uh, I sort of, just to help make it memorable, I've sort of captured them as in three C's. The first one is catch the bus. Okay. And by, what do I mean by that? Just making sure that the tax conversation and the tax incentives are part of your capital expenditure process. Historically, I think a lot of, cl- a lot of our clients have done projects along the way and then kind of go back and they see, it's like, well, hey, are there any tax incentives available? Right? But they've, done the, they've planned the project, they maybe even executed the project first, and then they're going to go back and basically see, if, frankly, if you can like, you know, find a few nickels in the couch cushions, right? That's, that's great. And that's helpful, but you're missing half of the opportunity, right? You know, it, particularly, you know, if you think about, you know, some of these location-based incentives, the, you know, the, the wage and benefit guidance, making sure that tax is part of that framework at the outset and that decision-making framework, make sure that you're going to evaluate all the opportunities. Now, you may not do everything, but I at least want you to, you know, be able to make that decision on an after-tax basis. A lot of our clients sort of think, still think of all this stuff as just being for wind and solar. Obviously, there's a lot of other technologies that qualify. One that is um, not particularly sort of, you know, media exciting, but very useful to a lot of people is combined heat and power systems. So there are a lot of businesses out there in the world that need both heat and process steam. Think about anybody who's like doing food processing, hospitals, you know, so, so, you know, some of those basics also qualify for incentives, and, and a lot of people don't realize it. Building energy efficiency is another one that I think a lot of our you know, friends who are responsible for corporate energy management are just doing. And if they know anything at all about the incentives, it's sort of what they've been taught by a sales guy from some EPC contractor. You'd probably do a little bit better than that. <laughs> well, and before you go on to your second C, I guess I think one of the points you're making, and I actually hear this from some of the people I still talk to in the power utilities industry, is definitely, you know, some of these incentives may make the difference between wanting to do a project and not wanting to do a project. And so I think your point of don't wait until after the fact and see what's available, but sort of look at what's available as part of your planning it's a big difference. So with a, with a couple of clients I've counseled recently, one of the things we've done once we kind of get to that holistic conversation with the, the tax folks, the ESG folks, and whoever's responsible for facilities management is I've actually asked the facilities management folks to go back through the last couple of years of CapEx requests and find a couple of the losers, mm-hmm. the ones that didn't get funded, that now that they've heard a little bit about the tax incentives, they want to remodel. And in a couple of cases, we found ones that's like, oh, wait a minute, we actually should do this one. So it's, it's a great point just to think about that. Yeah. And I guess the other piece even that comes in there, um, and I think this may go to your next point, is just working with the ESG people. So why don't I let yeah. you pick that so, up? So yeah, my second C after Catch the Bust is connect the dots. And, and a lot of what we've been doing at PwC is helping folks think through this holistically. Again, the best version of this conversation is one where you've got your organization lined up so that the tax folks, the ESG folks, and the facilities management or energy management folks are talking to each other. Um, There's a lot of opportunities here, but you're not going to just luck into them. You need to sort of think about how they apply. The other thing is you've kind of got a sense for over the last few minutes of conversation is the opportunities here require the tax department to wrangle and deal with types of data that they're not used to seeing, wage and benefit data. 
life cycle carbon analysis is necessary for some of these credits. But a lot of that information is also the same thing that companies are starting to manage and um, you know, sort of be more thoughtful about for their overall ESG agenda. So having that holistic conversation now gives you the opportunity to design your data systems in a way so that you can feed both processes simultaneously. Right? That kind of becomes a no regrets action for the folks who are responsible for ESG reporting and a real potential benefit for the tax function because it's going to give you a data set that'll help you look at some of these incentives to see whether the, you, know, you may qualify for some stuff that isn't immediately top of mind. Um, so you know, some of the work we've been doing with people that even includes things like data flow mapping or kind of figuring out um, with one client, I remember like the first thing we did was we sort of sat down and sort of looked at the org chart to figure out which piece of the company is responsible for each data flow you would need to go into you know, a 48C application. And then the second question was, well, have those folks ever met? Um, and, when, and when they haven't, right, then, yeah. you know, that, that's an opportunity to, uh, to pull people together and get them thinking about, you know, thinking about the project together. Um, the other sort of data issue dot connecting thing that we've been doing at PwC is, you know, we've got some colleagues who are actually really great at doing um, geospatial mapping. Um, and they are going back through all of their maps and um, trying to refine it to the point where you can drill down on a particular location and figure out, you know, all of the location-based incentives that may be available under the IRA and then cross-map that against things like, you know, how much sunshine does this place get every year or, you know, how hard does the wind blow here? Um, there's some really, there's some really interesting opportunities to do that sort of modeling too. Yeah. And I guess the other piece there is, you know, we see with some of these proposed regulations or in the case of the EU regulations that are coming where the companies are going to be required to report their climate targets and goals. That's the EU and the federal government for major contractors. They're going to require, if the rules are passed, they're going to require them to set climate targets and goals. And so I just think about companies that are either doing it voluntarily or part of these regulations, looking at these tax incentives and putting that in as a piece of the puzzle as you're designing targets and goals. I mean, it kind of goes both ways. You don't want to set the targets and goals and then go look at the incentives. You almost want to inform your targets and goals with yeah, the incentives. That's exactly right. And, 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 you know, and again, as part of this data design, I, I also wouldn't sort of sleep on the European Union carbon border adjustment mechanism. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the life cycle type information, the carbon reporting information that feeds these tax credits is also going to be necessary for anybody who exports into the EU and a lot quicker than most people realize. Right. Okay. One more. I know you have one more of our C's. So what's the third one? Third one is try to change the game. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, what do I mean by that? It's like, Hey, there, there are a lot of incentives here for emerging technologies, carbon capture, green hydrogen, um, you know, ways to accelerate adoption of things like wind and solar. So, you know, this is an opportunity for companies not only, to, again, just to, you know, kind of look at CapEx or, or sort of, you know, opportunistically sort of shop for incentives. It's an opportunity to look at your business model, right? Like, you know, what does this set of incentives and, and the the direction it sets for green energy, say about your supply chain or some of the businesses you want to be in. Um, a lot of our colleagues, um, you know, in, in, in our consulting practice have been talking to folks about their low carbon pathway, 
sort of figuring out, you know, it's like, how does the business model evolve over the next five years, 10 years to get to some of the science-based targets they're setting to look for opportunities in a clean energy environment that may not exist today, and then potentially to use the IRA incentives as a way to kind of help you know, create the financial pathway to go with the low carbon pathway for how do you evolve your business model from here to there. All right. Very helpful. So Matt, let me ask you one more question. This may be coming sort of from um, left field a bit. So I'm curious if you've seen it. You mentioned very early on in our conversation, the fact that some of these um, credits are direct pay, others are transferable. We're not going to get into accounting. That is going to be a, a later podcast coming. However, I'm just curious if you've heard any discussion from companies that are starting to look at structuring those types of transactions. If if we're getting any sense th- that there's a market developing, or is it still too early so days? I think the answer is both. Actually. Okay. Um, so there was there was actually an article in the Financial Times last week about the emergence of the uh, of the transferability market, and uh, one one of our peers who was quoted in that article said that uh, it, the the market's currently ninety five percent enthusiasm and five percent action, um, which is sounds about right to me. Um, but some term sheets are starting to emerge. The first term sheets on transferability are starting to emerge. Um, just to remind our listeners. There are three credits, the carbon capture and storage credit, the green hydrogen credit, and the advanced energy manufacturing credit, property credit, that are available for um, direct pay for any taxpayer. And, and you know, obviously, you know, people who are eligible for direct pay are quite enthusiastic yes. about direct pay. <laughs> I'll put a pin in that one real quick. Um, transferability is available for sort of everybody, for all the other credits. I think everyone is expecting a very robust market. We may be sort of one round of that treasury guidance away from the starting gun really going off on, on that market because I think there's still some unanswered questions about sort of tracing the credits once they're sold, kind of how the recapture works if for some reason they have to be recaptured but they've been sold to somebody else. But apparently, you know, there are term sheets out there right now mm-hmm. uh, that people are starting to take a look at. And presumably, they'll get refined and more executable as, as guidance comes out. I said I was going to put a pin in yes. direct pay. Um, just to come back to one subtle point, I started off this process thinking that anybody who's eligible for direct pay is going to take the money. Right? Like, that's cash. Right. I am no longer convinced that that is the right answer for everybody all the time. And it's because of the timing of when you get the cash. So the statute basically says the deadline for making a direct pay election is essentially when you would file the tax return. So presumably the IRS is going to process it somewhat akin to a tax refund. Mm. But that creates a lag. So some companies I've talked to who have taxable income are doing projects that would be eligible for direct pay are saying, well, maybe I'll just take the credit the regular way and reduce my estimated tax payment because I get to the value of the credit quicker than if I waited to file my return and get a check. Very interesting. So definitely some structuring on all sides of this, not just the transferable ones. Yeah, I think the one thing I've learned about this over the last six months is that there are no one-size-fits-all answers to any of these questions. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds like um, you've made a case that we need to have you back sooner than six months to talk about developments here. So definitely appreciate the insight. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.